Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a perceptive theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. In this podcast, three featured storytellers are intermixed with a community story slam. Today's featured stories are from Tara Adams, Shiva Rajbandari, and Veena Snow, interpreted by Lavona Andrew. It's time to come to your senses, literally, but also metaphorically. The theme, hearing, inspires the stories in this episode, so listen up. It's story time. Hi, welcome everybody to Story Story Night. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. I can do this part. Eichelberger. Uh, okay, I can't. You'll, you. <laughs> Lavona Andrews, everybody. No, it was S again. Lavona Andrews. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so tonight we are here for hearing. We are here for hearing. See what I did there? Uh, and we've invited. We've invited our guest musician tonight. Uh, remember, remember the pandemic? <laughs> so, uh, Lori Lorraine, uh, story, story Night never shut down. We were able to continue producing shows all the way through, which was very exciting. But for a big portion of that time, we became basically a television show. We had a small soundstage over on the west side of Boise. And there was a stage with fog effects and lighting, and, um, and there were only about five of us in the soundstage. It was the featured storytellers, the musician, and me. And so Lori Lorraine got to play for our show Jeopardy, uh, but there was nobody there to hear her live. So we invited her back tonight so you can hear her in person. Now, for the show Jeopardy, we always try to, well, I always try to think of some reason to have a particular musician. And for Jeopardy, I thought, what is a dangerous instrument? And the, <laughs> the banjo, obviously. No, but what I thought of was the musical Saw. And so I was looking all through town like, who plays the Saw? That sounds dangerous. And um, Lori Lorraine's name came up, and we challenged her to play the theme song to Jeopardy on the saw. And she did that night, and then also played the Claude. Am I remembering it? It's the Claude banjo, is that right? The claw hammer banjo. Claw, I forgot the hammer part. Okay. <laughs> claw hammer banjo. Speaking of hammered, <laughs> it smells a little bit in here like you all are getting hammered. Um, we did have apparently a little bit of a, a wine keg explosion in the back of the hall tonight. Uh, we do have smell coming up in a couple of months, so that's a preview of something to come. Uh, but tonight also it makes sense to have the clan, what? The hammered, no, the claw hammered banjo. Uh, because if I, unless I'm mistaken, I remember you telling me last time, you have to tune it between every single song. So you have to listen to each string? Each string, multiple times. We tune because we care. <laughs> that's not what I hear about banjo <laughs> players, but I'm good, that's good, that's good. So it just doesn't hold its tune, huh? No, it, it, it goes out of tune, plus you play in usually about, I play in about eight different tunings. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay, very cool. Well, we're looking forward to hearing more at intermission. And also, I know you've got a special uh, 
uh, song for us in Act Two. I want to thank our season sponsor tonight, the Shandro Group. Thank you. And also, welcome back, uh, a show sponsor who was a season sponsor for years. Uh, that's the Boise Group. Thank you. Apparently, to be a sponsor, you have to have the name group in your title. So we have Shandra Group, Boise Group. And the other group I want to thank are our story subscribers. Raise your hand if you're a story subscriber. Look at those happy, proud people who come every month to see stories. Thank you. And actually, uh, part of the reason we were able to survive during the pandemic was because of starting this story subscriber group who were supporting us every month, which was extremely helpful. And also, it is what is helping to give us the, these group of people have helped to give us the resources in order to hire our interpreters for the deaf, for the deaf and hard of hearing tonight. So, thank you for that too. It's a really been exciting to begin working on this show with the addition of these talented individuals. Uh, and you're going to meet another interpreter uh, later tonight. So, uh, do you like my shirt? I looked for the loudest shirt in my closet, so I thought maybe you know, you'd be able to hear it clear out there. I'll show you the whole thing. Wow, I'm not gonna do that again. That wasn't, no, no, forget it, forget it. No, I've decided it's not worth it. I'm not gonna do that for you anymore. All right, I have to get some new stuff from my closet. So uh, I was thinking about hearing and the interesting thing to me is that the thoughts, the memories, the stories that I had were about things that I shouldn't have heard. <laughs> and actually, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole. And, you know, there's overhearing, of course, but also called eavesdropping. And even though this is apropos of nothing, uh, ooh, apropos, that's a fun word. Wow, that's hard to explain. <laughs> now, I gotta be careful I don't just do this all night long, come up with interesting words I wanna see. <laughs> uh, eavesdropping, the root of this is uh, dew falling from the eaves on your house. The, so it's that zone where the water drips off of the eaves of the house, and so if you're an eavesdropper, you're standing where the water falls off the roof so you can hear what's going on inside the house. Isn't that interesting? I thought it was. You, yeah, you sound interested. Um, so uh, early in my career, I toured with a puppet company that was based in Vancouver, Washington called Tears of Joy Theater. And it was most often two of us in a Chevy van with a set and puppets <laughs> driving around the Northwest. We toured in Washington and Oregon and California, Idaho, um, made it as far as South Korea, not in the Chevy van, but. <laughs> and there was one, we had to do everything. We set up the lights, we set up the sound, we set our setup. Um, the production that I toured for the longest was a production of the Pied Piper of Hamlin. And uh, 
I remember being in Washington State, and when we hooked up our wireless microphones and turned on our sound system and started the show, there was a teacher in the school who had someone who was hard of hearing in her class and was using an assisted hearing device, and she wore a little microphone, and it was exactly the same frequency as our sound system. So we're doing the school assembly, and we hear her saying uh, something like, you know, hydrogen, water has two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom, and da -da -da. and then we hear a teacher from inside the auditorium run out and go in, and she's like, Miss Clarkson, we can hear you in the assembly. And we hear her say, oh, no, you can't. <laughs> no, yes, we can. We're doing a production of the Pied Piper, and your voice is coming across, coming across the sound system. Oh, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever. <laughs> Silence, and we did the show. So that worked out all right. <laughs> However, Idaho uh, had a special place in my memory uh, because we, we were touring in Jerome. And uh, there were a couple things about this performance space that were particularly daunting. The first was the load-in was up a flight of stairs, like a fire escape on the outside of the building. We were hauling all of our equipment from the van up these stairs and into the auditorium, and it was exhausting and just took longer. Finally, we're all set up. We turn on the power, we do our light check, we do our sound check, and then just before the, sh the kids are loading in, and we start to hear a voice over our sound system. And uh, the Pied Piper, of course, is the story of this town in Hamlin overrun by rats. Uh, and the Pied Piper comes with his flute and lures the rats away, and they drown in the river. But then he ends up taking their kids because they didn't pay him to do it. Uh, it's kind of a dark story, sure. <laughs> with puppets, it's fun. Uh, we start the show, and louder, or at least as loud as our own voices, over the radio waves is the voice of Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> now, how to incorporate that voice into the show was a challenge. <laughs> We kept going. I think maybe we were able to sort of associate him with the Rat King, uh, <laughs> that he was like constantly talking, and that's part of the reason why the town of Hamlin wanted to get rid of the rats, because they couldn't handle the, <laughs> what the Rat King was talking about all the time. So <laughs> it was a very awkward performing with Rush Limbaugh in the background, but we did make it through. And so those are both things where I feel like we weren't supposed to hear them. Uh, but one of the most surprising, I suppose, is because of where I was, uh, this is much later in my career, I was performing in uh, a musical on Broadway that was called Avenue Q, and it was at the Golden Theater, which is a Broadway theater. You think, whoa, this is it. This is like the fanciest stage in the world. It's the Great White Way. It's Broadway. And uh, I'm in a scene. There's only two of us. And it is a strange show, admittedly, because uh, we each have puppets on our arms, and we're performing the role simultaneously. So uh, 
my character is both here and also I'm playing the character here. So if we look this way, we were looking like this, we're looking over here, we're looking over here. It was one of the loneliest shows I'd ever been in because you never had any eye contact. Because we were directed uh, to look at each other's puppets, which are just these dead eyes. Uh, so my puppet's looking at her puppet, her puppet is looking at my puppet. However, in this moment, we're looking at each other and I think we just got a brief glimpse into each other's eyes because something weird was happening. We were doing our lines, we're doing the scene, and we hear this We're just doing the show, like, I don't know what's happening. I guess they'll tell us if something's wrong, we can stop. Well, this theater in New York City on 45th Street, the plaster was falling off of the ceiling <laughs> in the balcony. <laughs> and fortunately, most of it was right over the stairwell. Although during intermission, they had to move everyone from the, from the balcony down to the other seating because they were worried the rest of the roof was gonna come down. So that's another thing that I just remember hearing that I feel like I shouldn't have heard. Uh, I do enjoy being parts of performances that bring the roof down, but this was, uh, yeah, uh, that goes with the shirt, huh? <laughs> so how many of you, this is your first performance of Story Story Night? You've never been to Story, oh, wow. Usually I'm way wittier than I am tonight, <laughs> just to let you know. Uh, thanks for coming tonight, that's great. So the structure of the show is we have three featured storytellers. Uh, who These are individuals that we've curated. Sometimes they self-submit and anyone can submit to be a storyteller by writing story at storystorynight.org or you can also call our story line at 208-917-1970 and uh, pitch your story related to one of our themes that's upcoming, they're all senses this year. Uh, or we find people that we want to, we think would connect to the theme. And then that's intermixed with the community story slam. And anyone can do that tonight. You just go over to our slammer booth right over here, write your name on a ticket, and stick it in that little white box, and then you have five minutes to share a story on the theme. If you are getting close to the end of your five minutes, you'll hear me creeping up behind you. Um, yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> Good. Let's bring up our featured storytellers and let's do it in reverse order. So, she's going to share with you tonight some of her superpowers. Please welcome Davina Snow. <laughs> And he travels all the way to Egypt, hoping to be heard, Shiva Rajbandari. But first up to the mic, um, actually she is a story subscriber, which is super exciting. And she was having trouble uh, getting her tickets with her code, and so she wrote our box office saying, hey, what's going on with the ticketing site? I'm having trouble locking in my tickets. And they forwarded it to me, 
uh, because she had a little quote at the bottom of her email, and I have the quote here, I wanted to read it, because it says, deafness need not cause isolation, for isolation is deafening. And this, knowing that hearing was coming up, they thought, hey, I think this person might be someone who has a story to share for hearing. And boy, were they right. And so I reached out to her. And really, she became more than just a featured storyteller tonight. She became kind of a co-producer. She helped recruit stories for tonight. She also organized the interpreters for both our story salon, which is when the featureds get together and kind of rehearse with each other before the show, and also for the interpretation for tonight's show. It's her first time to the Story Story Night microphone, so please welcome Tara Adams. you. So I actually spent my entire life running from silence. I was born like most babies are with full hearing in both ears. But when I was about six years old, my mom started to notice that I was not responding to sounds that I had responded to before. So for example, when she would call out to my, my sisters and I, my sisters would turn to my mom and look at her, but I would stare straight ahead. And so she started to suspect that maybe I was not um, hearing things like I had before. So she took me to our pediatrician and, and expressed her concerns to him. However, my speech at that time was very well developed. And so with a simple conversation with me, the pedi her, our pediatricians laughed and said, oh no, she, she hears just fine. He was sure that I did not have a hearing loss. He, he said, he said, oh, she, she probably has mother deafness or, 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 or selective hearing, meaning that she's hearing what she wants to hear and ignoring all the rest, which, I mean, let's be honest here. I bet there's a lot of people in this room that have that type of hearing loss. No, maybe you're sitting next to someone with that type of hearing loss. Anyway, so she, he basically blew it off and, and told her not to worry about it and, and sent us home. But my mom knew, as most moms, she had a gut feeling like most moms do, and she knew that something was up. But it would take her almost three years to um, get someone to take her seriously and to refer me to a specialist for further testing. So I was six years old when I was put into an audiologist sound booth for the first time. Some of you may have been in one of those before. They're, they're basically like um, a human-sized metal box. Um, with like six inch thick walls and, and they're padded walls from on the inside, the walls are padded. And there's a, a chair in the middle of the room and, and, and a headset. And so the doctor sits me down in this sound booth and, and he goes out and, and shuts the door. And funny enough, there's, there's no knob to get out from the inside of the room. It has to be open from the outside. You know, when I describe it, it's like, 
that kind of sounds like a torture chamber. <laughs> but and, and it felt like that sometimes because I had to make so many trips to the different ones. But this was my first one. And basically what they do is they play, um, they, they make beeps at different tones and at different volumes. So if you're the one on the hot seat, you, um, you're listening and it's dead silent in that little um, torture chamber. It, it's completely silent. And if, you, and if you hear a beep, you raise your hand. Or if you're a little kid, you throw a, a block in the bucket. Um, so I, I threw a block in the bucket when I heard a beep. And then they, you, they, they're sitting outside of the booth. And there's a little window where they can see inside the booth to see how, if you raise your hand or not. And then they, if you raise your hand when they make a beep, they make a little mark and, and, um, and then play another beep. And so you can kind of um, so you can kind of sense when a series of beeps, descending beeps are played, and then it reaches a point where you don't hear any more. But there's still you know you're still being tested, so you know you're not hearing stuff. Anyways, from at these uh, um, with these um, tests, they confirmed what my mother already knew, and that that was that I did indeed have a hearing loss. What she didn't know, though, was that I had a progressive hearing loss, and that and the doctor, one of the doctors, told her that I would eventually be profoundly deaf in in both ears. Um, that uh, that was very difficult for my parents to hear that. Um, and they were worried about what the future would hold. One of the doctors even said, have low expectations. Um, she, she may never graduate from high school, but um, you know, just, just do the best you can. And they also told her, don't teach her sign language. If you teach her sign language, she'll stop talking which is not true, but that was kind of the advice that was being given then, you know, which is ironic because being bilingual is, is, is an excellent thing, but um, the spoken language is the gold standard, so, um, so no sign language. So I was six years old when I got fitted for my first hearing aids, and I went to school with them on for the first time, and that's when I started to realize that something was wrong with me. Um, I started noticing people staring at my ears or pointing at them and whispering, and, and I started to become self-conscious about it, where before I, I didn't know, I didn't care, I didn't know what I was missing, it didn't bother me, but I started to become aware, and so <laughs> it's funny, I, I mean, when kids would come up and they would point and be like, what are those things in your ears? And I'd be like, um, they're, they're mini radios, and they play music, <laughs> and they'd be like, you get to listen to music in class? Yeah, I do. <laughs> and maybe their jealous expressions made me feel a little bit better about the situation, even though it was a lie. But um, so I, I kind of played it off, but I, I didn't like it. I was embarrassed. And the older I got, and the more um, when I got into middle school, that's when things it started to really go downhill. And um, I became extremely embarrassed about it. I didn't like people staring at me. You know, in middle school, you just want to be normal. You don't want to stand out. You don't want extra attention. So I started, you know, wearing my hair over my ears and, and hiding my hearing aids so that people couldn't see them because then they couldn't make fun of me. But so I, I started trying. I was very ashamed and very embarrassed. And I started to isolate myself. 
um, to save myself the embarrassment of having to ask people to repeat things over and over again, or to, or to mispronounce words, or to um, miss something that someone said, or, or to catch it wrong. I, I, so I started kind of retreating into my own little world. I actually retreated into a world of books. I loved books, and I became a voracious reader because in books, I'm not deaf. In my stories, with, when I put myself into my stories with the other characters, I were all the same. So I loved to read, and that was my sanctuary. But my parents were concerned because I was withdrawing from the hearing world at large, the community around me. So they reached a point where, they, and I was always hiding in my ears. I was super embarrassed about my ugly brown hearing aids, and they could see my self-confidence was tanking. So they decided, all right, we're going to break the doctor's orders, in, and it's time for her to learn sign language so that she can use an interpreter and um, be able to participate more. So, but I needed to learn fast, fast, fast. So we accepted an invitation to go visit a school for the deaf, which they have here in Idaho. It's in a very small town called Gooding. It's, and Gooding is two hours from here. So most of the kids that attend that school stay there during the week. They live there in the cottages, is what they call them. They live there during the week, and then they go home to their families on the weekend. So that was a last resort, and it was very difficult for my parents to even consider that option. But I'll never forget the first time that I walked into that school. Well, I walked into the cafeteria when everyone was there eating lunch, and I looked out uh, over this the sea of kids just like me. They, they, many of them had hearing aids, many of them didn't, and, and they, were, they were signing, and they were, and the, the signing was beautiful. It was so vibrant and alive, and you didn't have to be able to hear anything to participate in that language. And I think the thing that struck me the most was they were laughing, and they knew what they were laughing at. I had been pretending for so many years. When other people would laugh, I would laugh too, on cue. And I was always so nervous that people would find out that I was a fake. So to see them genuinely laughing and understanding what they were laughing at, ooh, that got to me good. And I actually pulled my hair, my hair up. And, and made sure that everybody in that room could see my hearing aids, my ugly brown hearing aids. I'm like, yeah, 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 I got them too, guys. Like, take me in, please, I'm desperate here. And it was just, it was like Harry Potter finding Hogwarts. <laughs> it was beautiful, and I was at home, and I just absolutely fell in love. And, and this was a tremendous sacrifice. Tremendous, and I will always be grateful to my parents for letting me go, because I was a freshman in high school, and they didn't expect to send me away so young. But that was, um, I, I got to, I w was embraced by the inclusivity of that environment, and I flourished there. However, when I graduated from high school and went back out into the real world where people don't communicate with in sign language, and, I, and it was a challenge, and it, it was a struggle, and I missed living in that world where I had complete access to what was going on around me. Um, I, as a hard of hearing person, hard of hearing people um, have, have a, a, a challenging, um, it's a challenging journey because we never really feel fully understood by the deaf community. And we also don't fully understand and can't fully participate in the hearing world. So it's kind of an in-between, um, well, sometimes lonely place. 
um, or you don't really feel like you fit in anywhere. And so, um, and my hearing loss at that point was, um, had gotten worse and worse. And, and um, it was at the point where even the most powerful hearing aids on the market really could only give me an awareness of loud noises. But that was better than nothing. At least it wasn't silent. So the only time I ever took them off was when I slept at night. Every other moment I had them in, and swimming too, which I avoided water for that reason. Um, so I, I, but I began to miss sound. Uh, I, I missed music. I, I wanted to hear my kids' voices, and, and I wanted to be able to have conversations with people that, that, could, that didn't sign. So eight years ago, I got cochlear implants, and um, they're basically a surgically implanted device, and it's a pretty invasive surgery, and they have to, they have to go inside your head and plant, implant this electronic device, and so sound bypasses the ear and goes straight to the brain. So we, um, I got the surgery and um, got these, and when they turned them on, oh my gosh, it was horrible, absolutely horrible. It was just like, screeches and pings and beeps and, and my audiologist can tell you because she's here, but it was horrible. And, 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 but what I realized is sound is code. It's raw code. Sound is raw code until it is labeled with meaning. So from that, you, uh, it was basically like a newborn learning to hear, but I'm a fully aware grown adult and I have to go through the process of learning sound. So, uh, oh, there, the first two weeks, there was this one sound that never, ever, ever stopped. It was just like an echoing, like echoing wave. It just constant, constant. Unless I pulled them off, it just never, ever stopped. Two weeks, and I finally figured out what it was. It was my breathing. know that breathing made a sound <laughs> so it was like oh my so then my brain and I we had a talk oh that's what breathing sounds like uh -huh, I'll be done uh, okay so do we need to pay attention to that how do we file that do, do we need to should we put is it background noise yeah 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 background noise file it oh, oh unless it stops if it stops we should probably talk other than that, we can just let it go, forget it. But every single sound has to go through this learning process. So my husband and my kids were a very important part of this process in helping me identify the sounds around me. Thankfully, and the, the world is so noisy. Uh, thankfully, there are a few sounds that I love. I love the sound of trickling water. I love the sound um, I, I love the sound of laughter. I love the sound of birds chirping, which a lot of people don't seem to enjoy very much, but I, I love the sound of birds. Oh, there's one, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit this, but I love the sound of passing gas. <laughs> it is, you just never know. It, uh, it's, it's just, your body's talking and it has something to say. And, I think I, it's a, I don't know, it's a delightful sound. I tell my family, don't hold back. Go ahead, you know, just bring, bring it in here. Uh, let, me, let me hear that one. It's new. Everyone is new. I love it. Anyways, um, so, but there was one sound that nobody prepared me for. Um, my audiologist, my kids, no, my husband, nobody had prepared me for this sound. 
So about a little over five years ago, my husband and I went to a, a country music concert in Las Vegas. It's called Route 91. And while we were in this crowd of people, we, I heard what sounded like rapid gunfire. And, and, and I had never heard that before outside of movies. And, and, and my brain couldn't wrap, it, it couldn't wrap itself. So I remember looking up at my husband's face, just trying to see if I, if I was hearing this right. And his facial expression told me that, um, yes, that, that's, that's um, what, what my heart knew before my ears did, that that's what it was. And um, I am very thankful for his ears because I don't hear direction. I don't know where sounds are coming from, but he does very well, and so he was able to lead us to safety. However, the safe construct, the world that I had built up in my mind that made me feel safe had been shattered. And you can't unhear a sound like that. You can't erase it. It's forever etched in the echo chamber of your mind. So I was plagued with anxiety. So we were able to go home back to our families, but 61 other people that were in that crowd with us did not go home with us, go home to their families. And so I obviously had a tremendous PTSD and I was struggling greatly. So at this point, I decided to take up the practice of meditation. Um, I had spent my entire life running from silence, and then at some point, um, turning um, to this practice of meditation and and um, quieting, taking uh, taking off my implants and going alone by myself, and going into taking everything I have and, and going within. And it was there, finally, at last, in this space, that I heard the sound of my inner being. And it was in this sweet, blissful place that I finally learned to hear the sounds, the, old, the sounds that matter more than any other sound in the world. And it was in this place that I found myself and I heard the, the, those sounds. And let me tell you something. The deaf and the hearing alike can hear those sounds. Thank you. Do you like the sound of applause? It's okay. It's okay. Let's give her the other kind. There we go. <laughs> nice. I mean, I can help you out with some of the sounds you do like too, but maybe not. <laughs> it's a gift. It's a gift. Uh, I, after all this time, um, it got me. I actually uh, just recovered from COVID about a week ago, and it was my first time. But I feel, because I know people who've had it multiple times, and I know people who are struggling with um, post-COVID effects, like with their hearing. Um, tendonitis gets 
stronger. Um, so I feel really, I feel like I've fully recovered. I don't have foggy brain or anything. I don't have foggy brain or anything. <laughs> it's amazing. All right, let's gonna, we're gonna have a story slammer. And uh, I, I do like the sound of birds. However, I used to live on Lacamas Lake in Washington and there was a bird that would go, I can't whistle well. It, it went da 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 And I just was like, da-da-da, da-da-da. Made me crazy. Oh, we got lots of tickets in here tonight. That's great. Do we have uh, Liz, uh, Lizbeth Banks in the audience? Are you here? I didn't draw your name, but we have, uh, you, you, you know someone named Lizbeth Banks? Okay, they have, I think, uh, some personal belongings of yours out at the table um, that you might be missing. So just at intermission, they'll, they'll have that for you. Just go see them. Okay, uh, unless you want to tell a story right now. You can tell a story about what you just lost. <laughs> but no, actually, we are going to have, well, this is kind of sweet, too, because um, I think this person might be related to one of our interpreters. Um, we have a story from Brandon Doff. Is that right, Brandon Doff? Yes, very good. And, and I think, Brandon, you're going to be signing, right? So, um, great, so you can use that microphone there. And um, this is another interpreter who's helping us out tonight, Lisa Doff. Um, and so you have five minutes to share your story. Thank you so much. Okay, I wanna make sure the panelists can see me. Okay, it's such an awesome opportunity to come up here and share my experience, the story of mine. Um, just as a precursor, I have been deaf since birth. And I was raised in a small town here in Idaho of 360 people, born and raised. I am the only deaf person in my family and in my old community. And in high school and in college, really, that was the first time I had been away from my family was in college. And it's funny because when I left, that population of 360 people went down to 359. <laughs> so I remember, um, you know, in high school and growing up, I loved sports. And as a deaf person or athlete, we would call that a deaf gain. You know, there, is, there are definitely advantages to being a deaf individual. You know, just because we can't hear per se, that means our other senses are magnified. Our eyesight tends to be magnified, our, our sense of feeling. So I had some experiences on my high school basketball team. We had an away game in another town and the game was really, really close. And we fell behind or fell down by one point in the game and I, had, I, I was fouled out. And so that meant that it was my turn at the free throw line. And I knew that if I made that two-pointer, that would give us the game. So we only had just a couple of seconds left, so I knew I had to make those two free throws. You know, the people in the audience weren't aware of my deafness. Everybody was yelling and cheering, but I had no idea. 
Yeah, so I kept my eye on the goal and I made that free throw. It went straight into the basket. And then my second free throw, I started to feel something in the floor, this vibration. And I thought, likely it's somebody yelling, trying to distract me. So I went and I made my basket and that got us the game. <laughs> and I, I do have another experience I'd like to share. Um, upon graduating college, I was hired for my first job and I graduated in information technology and was hired to run the security cameras for that company, you, you're probably aware, Flying J, their truck stops. They had one in Caldwell and they used to be headquartered in Ogden, Utah. And I was in charge of running their security camera system. I had access to the entire nation's security cameras, so I could they really took advantage of my ability to see and catch things, whether it was dishonest employees or customers. I was able to gather all that data and send it to the local um, law enforcement. And I had some great experiences. So I'll share this one story. I have a good friend who travels a lot for his job. And he knew that I was working at Flying J headquarters and had that access to this system. So he and a friend of his were traveling and his friend was in IT like me, but he had no idea that I worked personally for Flying J. So they went into, I think it was somewhere in Iowa, one of the truck stops there. And my friend told him, said, hey, you know what? I, can, I know how to hack into the camera system. And his friend was like, he just looked at him like he was crazy. He said, yeah, right, whatever, buddy. So he signed while looking at the camera and right after that, text me and I was able to pull it up and find my friend on the camera. So I watched and I saved and backed that file up. Even though I wasn't really supposed to, I sent that file to my friend. Uh, it was a screenshot of the two of them on the camera system. And my friend got it on his phone and he said, see? And his friend just couldn't imagine. I mean, can you imagine the look on his face? Like, whoa, they're watching. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so anyway, the point of me, my story is, is as a deaf person, there are so many benefits and perks, especially when it comes to communication and, and communicating in sign language. If you have that opportunity to learn, please take it. And that's my story. Thank you so much. Would you like me to do that now? Yeah, sure, I can do that. All right. Thank you, Brandon. That was great. Yes. <laughs> How cool to have that story just come out spontaneous like that. I love it. I hope I don't get any texts of me and Flying J anytime soon. 
All right, we're going to move to our next featured storyteller. Um, also very excited about this story. Uh, first time at the Story Story Mike again. Please welcome Shiva Rajbandari. Thank you, and thank you. It's such an honor to be here uh, alongside all you. Uh, one of the ways that I've learned how to be heard in the world of adults is Facebook, which is weird. I have more Facebook followers or friends than my mom. So I, I want to take a little selfie, because this is my first time at Story Story Night, and I want to get out of the word and maybe come back. So, so is that good, or do we, need a, do we need a release for that? OK, OK, ready? Yay. I get you guys too. <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm known as a climate activist here, and, and I first learned about climate change in, in seventh grade. And many of you maybe don't know this, but here in Idaho, climate change is not part of our K-12 science standards. And so I was lucky to grow up in the Boise School District where we do teach climate change, and it's really a core part of, of our science curriculum. Um, but I, I took earth science in, in seventh grade. I was a year advanced. Um, and we spent a two-week unit learning about climate change. And it was you know, generally just the basics, right? You know, what's the greenhouse effect, the effect on biodiversity, the economy, and you know, this is what's going to happen. And, and I remember um, you know, just it being so eye-opening for me and my classmates and, and realizing, whoa, this is like huge and it's going to affect all of us. It is affecting all of us. Um, and, and then I remember thinking about my family in Nepal, where we learned um, climate change was disproportionately affecting um, you know, poor countries and, and poor communities. And, and I thought, what are, what are they going to do? What are they going to do when the, the Himalayan glaciers recede? Um, so far, there's not enough water for the 1.3 billion people who live on the Indian subcontinent. What are they going to do when the smog gets so bad that, that they, they choke? Um, and I just, I, I just kind of fell into this sense of, of despair. And, and you have to think back. So this was 2018. Um, so this was really you know, during a time when people weren't talking about climate change like they are today. It wasn't something we saw in the news. It wasn't something that we all know the name Greta Thunberg, or, or most of us, who knows Greta Thunberg? Yeah, most people, right? Youth climate activist, for those who don't, famous lady. But, uh, you know, at the time, she was, not, she was not a thing. I don't think she'd even started her, her, uh, her school strikes at that, at that time. And so it was not something we saw in the news every day. It was not something that our politicians talked about. And, you know, in the earth science class, we talked about the causes, consequences, and, and solutions to climate change, but we never really talked about what we could do. And I, just, I was just so like, paralyzed with this climate anxiety. I remember feeling it. And many people, probably in the audience, especially younger people, could probably relate to that. But so, so you know, I, I did what, what, we, what we learned, you know, kind of been conditioned to do by, by corporations. And my parents worked at HP, and so we went every, every year to uh, Earth Day at HP, and they talked about their new recycling technology and how you can recycle your, your printer cartridge and, and all these things. So I was like, recycling, that's the solution to climate change. Um, and I started recycling more and wrote a little letter to the editor about how my junior high school, like, they threw out the, the recycling with the trash and how I was so mad about that. Um, I'll, I'll, it had like apples and stuff in it, so it was not really quality recycling. Um, I, I turned away from you know 
buying new clothes. Everything I'm wearing right now is, is thrifted. You might be impressed, but those suburban thrift stores, South Jordan, Utah, go check it out. Thrift store down there. Got these swanky pants. Um, I uh, took cold showers. I got one of those Idaho Power shower timers. Does anyone have those, the blue ones you like turn? Um, and then and, and a year passed, and, and I was still kind of like, whoa, climate change is still happening. <laughs> and despite all of my actions, my voice had not been heard, right? Climate, climate change was still going on. What were we going to do? And uh, it, it was just, you know, really paralyzing. It was like, dang, no one is paying attention right now. Um, and so in, in ninth grade, uh, I was walking in Hyde Park with some of my friends, and I saw a poster for a, a climate strike. And I was like, well, what's a, what's a climate strike? It's like, well, it's like what they used to do in the 60s, and, you know, they'd Everyone would walk out of school and, and go down to the Capitol. And, and so I was like, let's go do that. Uh, and my friends were all super excited about that. And we went down to uh, the Idaho Capitol that Friday. And I think just as we walked in, you know, so at, at North Junior High, so you start kind of in the north end and you're walking up behind the Capitol. You don't see anyone. You're like, oh, I don't know if anyone's going to be here. And as, as I turned the corner onto, that's Bannock Street, right? As I turned that corner and, and saw the, the, the Capitol steps just packed with, with kids, I, you know, like something switched on uh, inside of me. And I was like, the, the sense of isolation and, and anxiety that I'd had kind of built up inside of me for like a year, a year and a half since, since seventh grade earth science, I uh, turned into the sense of, of empowerment, the sense of, wow, we really could do something. And uh, that day I got up, you know, they did like an, an open mic, which I, uh, now as an activist, like, that's a bad idea. Do not do an open mic at, at your, at your <laughs> protest because you get some, you get some like weird people. Um, not, nothing on, well, I won't go into that, but, but I got up after, after some of the speakers and I was like, I'm so mad right now. Mike Crapo, Governor Little, what are you guys doing? This is your fault. And, and I just remember everyone was cheering, and, and I, I remember that, I mean, that sound I, I will keep with me for the rest of my life, just the, the sound of people yelling and cheering, and, and it felt like we could really do something. And, and I checked the news afterwards, my friends and I, uh, you know, checked CNN, liberal news, and there were millions of people around the world who had joined us in this, in this global day of climate action. And that, we, we were being heard. It felt like we were being heard. Um, for the first time in a year and a half, it felt like we were being heard. And so I, I started organizing with the Sunrise Movement. They have some really good trainings and, and eventually got involved with the Extinction Rebellion and organized some protests, shut down Chase Bank, um, started, um, Chase Bank is the number one lender to fossil fuels. So sorry if they're a sponsor, but if you got, if you got your money in there, get it out, get it out, go to a credit union. Um, but, we uh, started you know, putting together a club at, at our school, a green club, um, and really started organizing for, for climate justice. And I got involved with uh, the Idaho Sierra Club's Climate Justice League, working for a clean energy commitment and long-term sustainability plan for our schools, for the Boise School District. Um, it was part of the Sierra Club's Ready for 100 campaign, trying to get all local governments, all regional governments, all national governments to commit to 100% clean electricity, 100% clean energy, with deadlines, with a plan. And the city of Boise had, had just put together a really comprehensive one. So shout out to them um, back in 
that must have been 2019. Um, and so, you know, we had a lot of momentum going into this and, and we started organizing. We, we wrote postcards, we wrote letters to the editor, we uh, organized school strikes. Um, for, for I think like literally a year and a half, we were working for this clean energy commitment and it, it felt like we weren't being heard. It felt like, you know, even though we had thousands of people signing this petition from around Boise schools, um, we weren't being heard. And, and so um, finally, you know, we started getting press and, and getting on the front page of, I think we were on the Idaho Press and, and the Arbiter put together this really cool political cartoon. So if you don't know who that is, Boise State's independent newspaper, check it out. And, the, and, the Boise, and we, we built enough momentum. We, we held a climate strike and I remember um, calling um, our advisor, Eric Willison, um, later after, after the climate strike and saying, well, is this gonna happen? He said, I think we just hit a turning point. And um, like a month later, the Boise School District had passed a collective commitment on clean energy, um, working for setting a goal to create a plan to, um, to establish a, a clean energy commitment and long-term sustainability plan for our schools. Um, yeah, it was exciting, it was empowering. It did take a year and a half, but it was awesome. And it is, it is really incredible, the work that's being done by, by the Boise School District. And, um, and so that summer, that was, that was last, so not this November, last November. I don't know if that's the right, is that the right word? Last November. Um, they passed that commitment and, and, you know, I started thinking, I started looking at like the school board elections and, you know, when, you know, when can, how old do you have to be to run for, for this position? Because I was like, you know, it would really be great if, if student voices could be heard on the school board, which makes decisions for 26,000 students, right? The primary stakeholder doesn't have a voice on, on the board. And, and I noticed my birthday is August 30th, so I'm kind of like an early, early baby. But, um, and, and the election was September 6th. And so I think by like May, I was like, I'm going to run. And, and I got some friends together, and then we organized a campaign. And um, you know, we started reaching out to press, and, and this was really utilizing these skills that I learned as an activist. How how do you get heard? Well, you you get the media on your team, and and you get a treasurer like Sam Sammeyer, who everybody knows. Who knows Sam Sammeyer? Anyone know Sam Sammeyer? Yeah, like look at that, look at that. That's impressive. Like in a room, Sam Sam is a powerhouse. And um, you, you know, you get some yard signs, and and you start knocking on doors. And we, you know, led this very traditional campaign. Um, we raised over $11,000 from grassroots donors, and we knocked on over $5,000. And, and I think the one thing we tweaked a little bit from, from typical campaigns is we paid our young people, and that was powerful. Because I think so often, you know, it's like youth voices are, you know, we say, oh, youth voices, that's so great. And then we don't pay them for their time, you know? Um, and, and, and so we were able to pay uh, every, all of our campaign staff at least $15 an hour, but towards the end we were paying on like 22 bucks an hour, you know? Thanks, Joe Biden. Just kidding. Um, so, and uh, election day came and, and we won with, with over 55% of the vote. Thank you. And, and I was elected as the first student on, on the Boise School District Board of Trustees. Um, and I just remember, you know, this community that had come around me and, and you know, so much support I received from my peers. And it was just so exciting. But it was also like a lot of pressure. I was like, what, how am I supposed to hear all these voices? How am I supposed to bring all these people in? Um, so that's something I'm working on and that's something I'm learning. Um, and it has been quite a process going from demanding your voice being heard to learning how to listen. Um, 
that, that's been really, really quite a transition. Um, but that's, that's something that I'm, I'm um, really honored to have the opportunity to do, because I don't, I don't think that's something that everyone, everyone gets to do. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, about a month later, I was reached out to by the League of Women Voters, and they had this scholarship for young people um, to go to the UN Climate Conference and, um, and have your voice heard, not on a national level, not on a, on a regional national level, but on an international level. Joe Biden was going to this conference. You know, the president of Brazil was going to the conference. All, the entire EU was going to this conference. And I was like, hell yeah, I'm in. And I had to write like a, a one paragraph essay. It was the best thing ever. It was like, wow, we really do want youth voices because we're gonna make this application so easy. You like, you can't even say no. <laughs> and, and, and so by, you know, mid-November, I, I think, I didn't even tell my parents till like a week before, but next thing you know, I was, I was on a plane going to Egypt. First time ever traveling alone and going international. It was, Kind of a lot, but, um, and, and on this global stage talking about climate change. And I was so excited. You know, I, I had brought all these stickers. I, I mean, I work at the Idaho Conservation League. Shout out there. Shout out Save the Salmon. Um, but, you know, I had all this stuff. I was like, we got to get this out to the world. You know, tell Joe Biden, like, hey, breach the dam. Save the salmon. You know, he could do that, actually, by the way. <laughs> Um, if, if you're listening, Joe Biden, you can order the dam's breach right now. Um, but I remember getting there and I was like, well, what am I even going to do? And I had a board meeting and it was 4 a.m. Actually, the day I arrived and I had a board meeting, but it was 6 p.m. here. So, so I had a board meeting. I was, it was like 4 a.m. I was up till 5. Then I had to get up at 7 to get to the, the conference. And I remember going in, not knowing anybody, not even knowing, like, I didn't even have a pass to get in. I was like, what am I supposed to do? Um, but luckily, I like, met this girl on the bus, and, and we became quick friends. And that's one, thing, that's one thing I do value about youth activists is no matter where they're from, no matter who they are, we hear each other. And it's freaking awesome, the networks that we have around the world um, where, where we can just be heard and, and be, you know, be in solidarity. But um, you know, I, for a week, I watched world leaders um, deliberate about climate change. And if you've ever been to the UN, it kind of goes something like this. Hey, yeah, uh, someone can guess that. Climate change is, is a really, really big problem. We've got to solve it. And the other guy gets up and says, yeah, climate change. Gosh, it's going to just ruin everything. And I'm like, so do you want to do something about it? Yeah. Oh, no. Do you want to do something about it? No, 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 no. You, it's, you, guys, you need to do something about it. Nothing got done. Big surprise. COP 27, 27th COP, and again, we, we really don't have a lot of results. Um, and it was just so frustrating. I was like, ah, here I am on a global stage. You know, I went, I flew, what, 36 hours uh, through the Middle East to get, to get somewhere and have my voice heard on an international scale, and, and nothing is happening. Um, and, but I, I, did, I did meet some really cool people. That was cool. Um, <laughs> but... I, I, so I, I went to, to Amsterdam because I was like, well, I got a comp ticket, so might as well just you know, go stay in a $15 hostel in Amsterdam. That was, it was weird. Do not stay in a 15-person room. Just smelled so bad. Maybe that's, invite me back for the next sense. Smell, gosh. And I was just processing. I was just processing. I was like, what are we going to do about climate change? Oh, my God. It was, like, it was like going back to seventh grade. You know, it was like, we are so powerless. Um, there's nothing we can do. And, and then I remember taking the train 
from, uh, from Amsterdam to The Hague. And at, you know, this is a high-speed train, electric train. And I remember passing these, these solar panels um, on the way. And, this, and you know, Amsterdam like, produces half of Europe's food. And it's like this tiny, or the Netherlands produces half of Europe's food. And it's like this tiny country. And I remember passing all these like, sustainable farms. And, and, and I think my mindset switched. It was almost like hearing the, the cheers on the Capitol steps four years ago, um, nearly to the day. Um, where I realized, wait, we can do something about climate change. And they're doing it right here. And I thought about Boise. And they're doing it back in Boise, too. And they're doing it in, in Boston. And I remember this, this, conference, this panel I'd attended in, in, in Egypt in, in, at the UN Climate Conference. And there were, there was, there were mayors from Africa and, and from Portugal and from all over the world talking about what their cities were doing on climate change. And all of this really was started by some activists stepping out of school one day. And what I realized is we don't need to go to the international level to be heard. The place where our voices are most amplified is in the pioneer room at Jump. It is on the local level where climate change is going to be solved. It's at the school board. It's at the city, city hall. It's at your neighborhood association meeting. Every time you bring up climate change, that is a climate solution. That is, that is you being heard within your community. And, and guess what? Other people are listening. And other people are sharing too. And when we all listen and, and, and talk to each other, that's when change happens. And so I came back after the three-day stint in Amsterdam more motivated than ever. Not because COP was a big success, no, it was not, geez, Joe Biden. <laughs> um, <laughs> but because everything that we've been doing for four years on climate change here in Boise, here at North Junior High, at Boise High, in the Boise School District, that stuff mattered. That was the, the, that was the global solution to climate change. And it wasn't just happening in, in, in Boise, it was happening all around the world. I met activists in Ireland, I met activists from, oh my gosh, Vanessa Nakate. You guys know, who knows that name, Vanessa Nakate? Look her up. She, they say Greta Thunberg of Africa, she's cooler than Greta Thunberg, I'm sorry. Um, she's, uh, she's from Uganda. She's just incredible young activist working for, for reparations, but she's doing that there. And, and all around the world, there are youth activists just like me, just like y'all working for climate solutions. And, and that's where we'll be heard, it, on the local level. So that's, that's my climate story. <laughs> Thank you, Shiva. Ah, Shiva, you, you give me hope, you give me hope. But you also hurt me. Because uh, how I found you for tonight was on Facebook. Which means I'm old. But I also love that you could um, go to Cop Out 27 and still come back with like a vision for action and that things are taking place. That's really awesome. Uh, we have a message from our sponsor here. Uh, Chase Manhattan Bank is the lo <laughs> no. um, Actually, uh, 
Lori Lorraine, um, normally I ask our musician if they have any insurance music that they could play under this. Uh, is some, anything coming to mind related to insurance? I have a song called Beware Sweet Lies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if you can insure against sweet lies, but let's give it a try. The Shandro Group knows there is a difference between offering your employees insurance and benefits. From our first conversation to day-to-day -day benefits management, we use data-driven and culture-focused methods for designing your benefits portfolio. We know no other program in a business can impact employees' financial, emotional, and physical well-being more than employee benefits. And there are no sweet lies. Oh, add that last one. Great, thank you. All right. Uh, we are going to take a bit of a break. I think we do not have wine at the back bar back here, I believe. So if you're looking for wine, go out to the lobby. Uh, if you would like to be a volunteer for Story Story Night, you, in addition to signing up to be a featured storyteller, uh, sorry, to be a slammer tonight, uh, which is basically an open mic. I, we're brave, right? Uh, you can also sign up to be a volunteer over there. And there may also be some from our show sponsor, Boise Group, there may be some calendars out in the lobby. This is what January sounds like in a painting. Uh, so you can go out there and we'll see you back here in just about 10 minutes for more stories featuring hearing. Thank you. All right, everybody, we're gathered together. Thank you again, Lori Lorraine. We'll get our storytellers back up here as well. All right, here's, we're just missing Shiva. He's out campaigning. <laughs> Actually, I wanted to tell Shiva, if you're hearing us on the, uh, on the intercom, uh, I did notice, bizarrely, just this last month that there, were a significant, there was a significant increase in podcast listens of Story Story Night in Washington, D.C. So, who knows? Maybe, maybe you will be heard there. <laughs> oh, here he is. So Joe might be listening, Shiva. Washington DC showed up on our uh, podcast. You can sit up here. You're one of our, you're, you're special. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We're going to start our second act actually with a featured song from our guest musician. I believe this is an original song that uh, you wrote. Is that right? That's right. And it's called Porch Phil. Porch Phil. Porch yeah. Phil. This yeah. is a character you invented. No. Oh. <laughs> Not really. He's here tonight. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Porchville. One day a young man walked out of his life, took the road as his lover and the stars as his wife. He shivered and starved as he walked ridge to ridge, and one day he stopped in the middle of a bridge and the fish said hello sir how do you do and a woman ran past wearing brand new shoes he stood on the bridge and breathed in the air and that day he stopped walking 
from here to there. Bridges aren't built to keep us from land. Trails are supposed to begin and end. A porch built from matches will burn up in flames. But that don't matter at all today. Cause this living is good and tomorrow can wait. One day a young woman walked out of her home She wandered and drifted out on her own Took the sea for her lover, but none as her man Tried to weather the tempest on barren land But the waves were so many and she was just one One day she got up and started to run Left her lover the sea for the trail and the creek She learned how to sing but forgot how to speak Bridges aren't built to keep us from land. Trails are supposed to begin and end. A porch built for matches will burn up in flames. That don't matter at all today. Cause this living is good and tomorrow can wait. One day an old soul saw far too much He drove through the night through tears and dust But east was west and up was down The dawn light came but it was all turned around But day followed night and night followed day And he slept in the trees and lived in their shade The wolves read a howlet of the mountain He built a porch and started again Bridges aren't built to keep us from land. Trails are supposed to begin and end. A porch built from matches will burn up in flames. That don't matter at all today. Cause this living is good and tomorrow can wait. Thank you. Thank you, Lori Lorraine and Lisa, thank you. Wow, a porch built from matches will burn up in flames. I can think of a few people organizations who maybe need to hear that. Um, Shiva, you might be able to use that at some rallies, huh? <laughs> Don't build your porches out of matches, people. Uh, that was beautiful, and what a wonderful story and song. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. All right, it's not too late uh, to take that bridge over to the Slammer booth and sign up, but we are going to pick a Slammer now for our next story. If you would follow that bridge from there to here. 
That was a beaut. That line really. Say that line again about the bridge. Bridges aren't built to keep us from land. Bridges aren't built to keep us from land. That, that really resonated with me and with Susan too. I think. Yeah. You don't hang out on bridges, do you? I've seen you on a bridge. Yeah. Yeah. All right, our next slammer. I forgot to mention that this is a family audience. So, uh, oh, <laughs> all right, this guy is doing things in reverse. What often happens is someone will slam at a show and think, wow, that was an amazing experience. I want to be a featured storyteller. Well, what's going to happen tonight, however, is a featured storyteller from Sight has now entered to be a slammer. So please welcome back David Fitch. Here you are. You're back. All right. I forgot how tall you were. Oh, well, it's the boots. Yeah, okay. I love to ski. In fact, most of my friends would say I'm obsessed with it. So I was skiing up at Bogus Basin a couple weeks ago, and out past me comes a group of four or five young guys, maybe 19, 20 years old, moving around. They move faster than I do, try to stay out of their way. And one of them is wearing a fluorescent yellow ski outfit, which I'm all for. I like to be able to spot people to avoid running into them. Well, he's also wearing a backpack with a boom box in it. He's got this music blasting away up on the mountain. And I thought, wow, that's kind of rude to make that much noise. And that also seems really high effort. You could just put a couple earbuds in there and get the same thing and not have to haul this thing around. You know doing a bunch of work up there. Anyway, they took off. I went my direction, forgot all about it. Well, later that day, I was riding up on one of the chairlifts that kind of goes up parallel to one of the, the slope ridges. I'm riding up on that chairlift, and I start to hear something up on the slope. Well, that's music. I'm starting to hear some music off in the background. I look up the slope, and I can see you know, some shapes up there, some people, a group of people skiing around, and one of them is fluorescent yellow. It's that guy. It's that guy with the obnoxious boombox in his, in his backpack, and I, you know, was working myself up, and then I thought, wait a minute. When I was that age, I did the same thing. <laughs> I blasted my music. It was, it was all new to me. I thought it was the best thing in the world, and everybody had to hear it. My parents, their friends, anybody else out at a campground, anywhere, blasted that music out because I wanted them to hear it. So I'm starting to change my opinion of this young man a little bit. All right, well, so I did that, and he's doing it. We get kind of closer to them, closer to them, and now I make out what song is being played. It's Queen. He's playing Queen. <laughs> we are the champions. I'm going, not only did I do that, I did it with the same songs. He's, he's playing the same music that I inflicted on everybody else. So I'm changing my attitude even more. Well, now, you know, kind of a kindred spirit, you know, still obnoxious, and, but chalk it up to youth. Ride up the chairlift, get off on the slope, and I'm heading down. I'm going to go to the other side. Well, you have to ski down these kind of connector trails that are narrow. I'm skiing down my connector trail a little bit, skiing down it, skiing down zoop. Some young guy goes by me five times my speed, scares the heck out of me because you don't have much peripheral vision in these goggles. I whoa, jump out of the way and, okay, they don't usually travel alone, so I'm gonna, 
I'm gonna edge over to the right of the trail. You know, it's the convention for driving, so I'll just let this guy pass me. And another one goes by. Well, you know, I called that one right. Zip, he went by me. Another guy zips by me. And then I start hearing music. I start hearing music coming up behind me to my right. I go, uh-oh. So I move all the way over to the left, and I discover why, because I'm coming up on a jump that's on the right-hand side. Here comes a guy, zoop, fluorescent yellow, flying through the air over me, lands in the trail, he's gone. Excellent skier, really fast. And I'm thinking my attitude went from, I was annoyed by these people carrying backpacks around, to, all right, I did it as a youth, too, to, hey, playing the same kind of music, to now, I want everybody to wear one of these <laughs> so I don't get surprised on one of these narrow trails and scared. So next time you ski, turn up your boom box and we'll get along fine. Thank you. I think you already got a poster last month, yeah, didn't you? Did. All right, so did you get a calendar? There you go. You got a calendar this time. Thank Great. You. Thank you. Which is a perfect segue. Uh, do you have any uh, realtor music or um, property, home, home, buying, home buying music? Songs about home? No. No. All right. Just <laughs> strum a G chord and modulate every other measure. All right. When was the last time you really felt heard? Chances are it's been a minute. At the Boise Group, we understand how frustrating it can be to get your point across when you're buying or selling your home. That's why we start every relationship by listening more than we speak. Truly hearing our clients' needs and desires helps us provide exceptional experiences every time. You might not be one of tonight's storytellers, but you still deserve someone who will hang on to your every word. We're proud to continue our tradition of sponsoring Story Story Night. Thank you, Boise Group. All right, and uh, David, if you didn't remember, uh, they're not wearing fluorescent jackets, but you do have to sign our release over here at the story booth if we have that up and running. All right, we're going to have our final featured storyteller for the evening. Uh, again, another first-timer at Story Story Night uh, speaking from the stage, so that's super exciting. Please welcome Davina Snow. I am honored and thrilled to be here tonight. For the theme of hearing, my world is very quiet. I don't hear anything. But I do have several superpowers that I can tell you about. I want to start by opening with a story before I share those superpowers. At one time, I lived in Maryland. My husband and I are both completely deaf. And we lived in the area between Baltimore and Washington, DC. At the time, we had a two-year-old son. We just bought a brand new house. I was very pregnant. One day, I felt weird. Something felt off. My back was killing me. 
I mean, that happens when you're pregnant. So that part wasn't weird. I just ignored it throughout the day and then it got worse and it just got worse and worse. And we're in our brand new house. And I thought, Ugh, okay, I have to go to the bathroom. Like, so I went and I was sitting in the bathroom and I felt this incredible pressure. I was like, okay, there should be a bowel movement, but there was nothing there. And I was like, listen, I don't know what's going on, but there should be something there. So I went and I got my husband. I was like, I don't know what's going on. This feels very weird. I feel like I need to go to the bathroom. Could, could you see what's going on? My husband took a look and he's like, uh, there's a baby. And I was like, there, there's no baby. <laughs> ha ha, very funny. No way, uh, I've already had one. That's not how it works. And he's like, no, really? And he said, let me look. And so I pulled down my pants and my husband's like, I can see a head and hair. And I was like, okay, I'm just keeping my knees closed. Let's go, let's go, let's figure it out. So we're in the basement of the house. My husband grabs our go bag, throws it in the car. Our two-year-old son throws him in the car seat and I'm like, oh, I cannot keep these legs closed. And I'm trying to like walk up the stairs. So I'm waddling up and finally I get in the car. Now we had just moved, like just moved. Now, we had a plan to go to the birthing center near Baltimore, but that was a half hour away. Literally, like, first days in this house, we don't even know where the hospital was. I was like, it's fine, we're gonna see a sign, let's go. <laughs> so we get on the highway, and I can't keep my knees together, and suddenly I'm holding my newborn. <laughs> what do you do? My husband's driving, he's like, no, no, but like, put it back, what do you do? <laughs> so. So now this baby's eyes are closed. It is not crying. It is not making sound. It is not moving. I am like, I have just given birth and it's stillborn. And so we see a gas station on the other side of the highway. This is a divided highway with a borrow pit and not like a little Idaho adorable borrow pit. There are trees, there are grass, there is rough terrain. We are not in a four by four. So we cross the median through all of this. My husband runs in, tries to write, tries to gesture, where's the hospital? And they're like, oh, it's over there. So now he has to cross the borrow pit and we get all the way back across. And now we're back on the road. And then we see a police officer. We start chasing the police officer. <laughs> He's supposed to chase us, but we're like, Right behind him, my husband's trying to honk. We're hoping he can hear us. Uh, flashing lights. Finally, the officer pulls over, gets out, and this woman is angry. Like, why are we pulling her over? And so my husband's like pointing, like trying, baby, over there. Finally, the officer's like, oh. We see her talk into a thing on her shoulder. There's a lot of talking. There's a lot of talking. Suddenly, fire truck pulls up. Uh, we hadn't realized there was a fire station right next to the gas station. So yeah, we were so focused on the hospital. So I'm holding this baby that's not moving. This fireman comes tearing up to the door, pulls it open. He turns down the radio that's been blaring and pulls out a stethoscope. He needed the music turned down so he could hear if the baby had a heartbeat. He gave me a big thumbs up. I gave him a thumbs up. Like, okay, the baby must be fine. We have a thumbs up. It must be alive. What a relief. I had been terrified. 
Eventually, the ambulance arrives. They check out the baby. We were literally one block from the hospital this whole time. Lesson learned. <laughs> In the end, it all worked out. My superpower is visual. My sense of hearing may be gone. I've never recalled being able to hear anything. But instead, my sense of sight is enhanced. I can see what's going on around me. I know when there's sound because people will look that direction. Somebody will let me know their sound. With the fireman, when he walked up, he's pointing to his ears so I know there must be something loud. I didn't even know the radio was on. I'm completely deaf, I didn't hear it. So I knew he needed to be able to hear so he could hear the baby through the stethoscope. So my eyes substitute for auditory. Another superpower is my sense of touch. It's almost like the force. So if I'm in an elevator, people typically know like, oh, it's going to open because they hear a ding. Some people watch for the light. If there's no light, in my case, I can feel a vibration through my feet. Through a lifetime of experience, I know what it feels like when an elevator's moving. I know what it feels like when it stops. I know what that little whiff of air that comes in when a door is about to open or when it closes. So breath, air, all of those are my senses that are enhanced. My third superpower to share with you is being bilingual. My name in English is Davina. In ASL, American Sign Language, this is my name. I started learning sign language when I was two years old, the same time my mom started learning sign language. My siblings learned it, but my mother and I became more fluent. I grew up here in Boise. I attended a school in a mainstream setting with two other deaf students. So the three of us went to school together. We had peers, we had an interpreter, we could chat with other students. And we were attending what's referred to as an LRE. Under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, also referred to as IDEA, the least restrictive environment assumes that people who have a disability should go to their local school district, and that's called the LRE, Least Restrictive Environment. That's where I went. I was able to play at recess. We were able to communicate through gestures. I could see people talking, but I didn't need to use my mouth, so we would just play. We were able to communicate. But once I hit the magic age of middle school, I started to feel different. I started to feel more isolated. In middle school, you don't play during recess. You gossip, you talk, you spill tea. And I was feeling very lonely, very isolated. Like Tara, I watched, I read lots of books. I watched TV. At noon in the cafeteria, I would get my food and I didn't even know where to sit. I wasn't able to communicate. 
There were a few people who had some ABCs, but that's not enough for a junior high conversation. So typically I would get my food and I would go to the teacher's lounge because there was somebody there who could sign. So at lunch, my social group is my teacher. That's not appropriate social development. My academics were fine. I was at grade level. My intelligence quotient, my IQ was fine, but my emotional quotient was lacking. I'm not developing social skills, just talking to a teacher. So discussing it with my parents, we talked about, I needed to go someplace else. In seventh grade, we had an exchange student from Hong Kong who was deaf. And that lucky person got to go to the residential school for the deaf in Gooding. And they were there during the week and they came and stayed with our family on the weekends. And I thought, what? There's a school for the deaf? I was so naive. I didn't even know that was an option. So I went with my host sister so we could see the school and drop them off. And we saw the cottages. They're like dorms. Um, and I was like, oh, I want to go here. And my parents were like, you would be gone for a week and only home on the weekend? Mm, no. I begged. And they told me no. My exchange student sister would come home on the weekends and I'd be like, tell me about your friends. Tell me about your teachers. What's going on? What did you learn in class? What are you doing every night? What did you eat? All of those things. So all week long, I would hold up all my questions. And then they would come on the weekend and I would ask everything. After the year, uh, my exchange sister left and I was still attending the local mainstream school and I was becoming more depressed and more isolated. And finally, I went back to my parents and I said, life is pointless. I don't even want to live anymore. It is so worthless. And my parents were like, okay, you need to go to the school for the deaf. And I was elated. I could meet people who were like me. All along, I'd been in the least restrictive environment, <sighs> the LRE. No, I needed an LRE that stood for language rich environment. When we look at people who have disabilities, we assume that local is best, but for people who are deaf or who have their own culture, who have their own language, that's different. People who have other disabilities, it might be an appropriate setting for them because they share culture, they share language, but people who are deaf need to be like, need to be with other people who are like them. Finally, I had a language rich environment. I could flirt, woo, I could laugh. I met my husband there. <laughs> my entire world exploded in the most wonderful ways. After graduation, I attended Gallaudet University, which is in Washington, DC, and it's the only university in the world designed for deaf people. There are international students, there are students from all over the US, it is such a wonderful opportunity. When I'm there, I could be part of sports organizations, I could be part of theater. When I was there, I forgot that I was deaf. I was just normal, I was Davina, living my life. Everybody there was bilingual. It was amazing. It was beautiful. I graduated from Washington, D.C., 
Gallaudet University, and I was self-confident. I knew that I could overcome anything. When we decided to move back to Idaho, I was bilingual. I now am the director of the American Sign Language Program at Boise State University. I am the only deaf full-time faculty, and I love teaching ASL and coordinating. I have four children. Remember, I had the two-year-old and then the baby born in the car? That baby in the car is now 19, and he still drives that car. <laughs> I am so grateful to those of you who tonight were able to hear me, not just with your ears, but also with your eyes. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. And uh, what's amazing is the song that was playing in the car when the firemen came up was Queen. <laughs> She left that part out. <laughs> you know, this working with Story Story Night is often very rewarding, but this show has been especially rewarding to be invited in to see the relationship between uh, a deaf person or a hard of hearing person and the interpreter and and being included in the process of them really exploring that bilingual nature. So I got to kind of sit on the side and see the negotiations of like, well, which word is best in English? And oh, I was hoping, I was glad you used that word. And you know, it's, it was really inspiring to me to see how it really is taking one language and moving it to another language. So these are such talented people that are with us here tonight. Thank you so much. Plus, these stories that we gain access to are so rich, and it really hurts my heart that we don't have that access all the time. <sighs> it's a vision of a world where we can all just communicate. And boy, I'm grateful to have that experience tonight, but it also makes me realize what we're missing. Hmm. I'm not going to Egypt to talk about it, though. But we are going to have a slammer. So Ben, you are primed and ready to go. Oh, by the way, uh, if you, Davina Snow, the person she flirted with real hard, who became her husband, is Stephen Snow, who was featured in our production of Starry Story Night Libra, um, telling his story about experiencing 9-11 as a deaf person in Washington, DC at Gallaudet University. It is amazing. And it is our most listened to podcast in the history of Story Story Night. You can either listen to it on our podcast, um, look up Starry Story Night Libra, or you can also see it on our YouTube channel. All right, here we go. It looks like we're going to hear from Mary Lee Doby. Oh, uh-oh. Uh-oh, we're in for something, I think. Here. Here she comes. Mary Lee. Lori Lorraine has a song for you.
Um, I can't do glasses and lights. So, I'm a teacher. It's all about listening and being heard, right? Normally, I teach sixth grade. For many, many years, I have taught sixth grade. This year, I teach kindergarten. <laughs> the things you hear in kindergarten are elating and terrifying all at the same time. The things that you think are heard are elating and terrifying because you think you are very clear in what you said. It is very straightforward. Stop chewing on your sleeve. No, really, take your sleeve out of your mouth. No, uh, yeah, that sleeve that's in your mouth, all the way up from your elbow into your mouth. Take it out. Okay. They look sideways, and immediately the sleeve is back in their mouth. You hear things. You hear about the wonderful things, right? My grandma's coming in from Arizona. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for you. It's wonderful. That is awesome. The things you don't hear are terrifying. The information doesn't always pass from parent to teacher. It gets bypassed and the kids tell you. You say, oh, we're going out. Everybody's in a line. Okay, I see your mom. There she is, go get her. When we're passing them off at the end of the day. I see, oh, there, oh, there you go. There's your dad. And you pass the one little one on and she says, oh, my mommy died this summer. And you're thinking, why didn't somebody tell me that? Why? Why is it the little girl had to tell me that her mommy died this summer on the first day of school? Boy, what a change from sixth grade. I, I guess I'm glad I didn't hear what you heard in sixth grade. Um, part of that puppet tour that I mentioned, we would do Q&As after each of the shows, and the kindergartners, oh boy, they had the best questions. Uh, usually it was like things like, I licked all your puppies, which <laughs> the translation apparently was, I liked your puppets. Um, we also got the question, my dog died and I miss him, you know, which was hard. My favorite, uh, <clears throat> I had to defer to my tour partner who was from the South because we were touring in the South and we were doing a production of Snow Queen by Hans Christian Andersen 
and uh, please forgive the approximation of my accent, but the child uh, said, is the reason you're doing Hans Christian Andersen is because you're using your hounds? <laughs> Mary? <laughs> Would you like to take that one? All right, I'm gonna use my hands to draw another story slammer. Hands, it was hands, not hands, hands. Use your hands. Her dad was asking her mom, where were his paints? And she said, well, they're in the garage, Ken. My paints are in the garage. Yes, they're in the garage. No, my paints, my paints. All right. Here we go. Coming out of the garage. Oh, this is a slammer that we haven't heard from in a while, but is a long time Story Story Night community member, Chris Harrington. Chris, welcome back. This feels like appropriate music for you, Chris. Well, I'm one of those people who doesn't need an alarm clock to wake up. I can decide when I'm going to wake up, and I wake up annoyingly half an hour before that time. But it wasn't always that way. Before I moved to Idaho, I was working down in Key Largo for several years, and I was renting a room from a woman named Carol, and there was a dog, a large red Doberman, named Simba, who was renting the couch. <laughs> the story of how Simba ended up in that house is a story from another time. It's uh, a little grim, but it was a really sweet dog. Come up and lean on you every now and then. The normal routine was that I would wake up well before dawn, get up, go out and get the dog, and we'd go out, wander around the neighborhood, then I'd head off to the gym. So one morning, I, the alarm went off, and I reached up and turned it off, walked out into the living room, and the dog was lying there on the couch, giving me a look that I realized later on was confusion. Normally, he was up and ready to go when I was ready to go. This time, he just looked at me. I said, well, come on, let's go. He slowly got off the couch, and we headed out into the porch, and I took his leash and didn't actually put it on him because he didn't really need a leash. He just wandered around with me. And we headed out for a walk. Now, anyone who knows male dogs, they're always checking their pee mail. And I noticed that he really wasn't interested in the bushes or anything. He was just sort of ambling along with me. Oh, boy, that's really strange. I noticed that the trash men weren't out banging on the cans. They were usually doing it about the same time. And there wasn't a lot of traffic noise out on US-1, which there normally is at that time of day. And the animals weren't waking up. Usually by the time I got back from my walk, the, uh, it was starting to get a little bit light. But there's nothing going on. About halfway through the walk, I realized something was really wrong. This was probably not early in the morning like I thought it was. 
By the time I got back to the house, Carol's standing there in the doorway, and she said, you have no idea what time it is, do you? She said, it's 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> now, normally, she would get, go to sleep much later than I would. She said, I took the dog for a walk. I came back in, went into the bathroom, and come out, and the dog's gone. It's like, what happened to the dog? So she went out on the porch, and the leash is gone. She said, well, maybe my son John came over, but that's really strange. They wouldn't even say hello. And just, and why would he show up at 11 o'clock at night? And then she realized that I was gone. So I hadn't heard the alarm go off. I had dreamt that I heard the alarm go off. <laughs> but I had reached up and turned off the alarm. And that's how I managed to totally confuse a dog and sleep in the next morning. Thank you. All right, bring us another slammer, please. Gosh, how disorienting to suddenly realize that it's 11 o'clock at night. <clears throat> Here we go. This is going to be a good one. Oh, oh. It's catchy. All right. This one has marks for pronunciation. I'm going to go with Tiffany Falve. <laughs> Tiffany. Oh, there we go. On the other side. Yeah, you can use those stairs. Hi, everyone. Hi. My name is Tiffany Falvey. I moved to Idaho in 2000 and started a family because it is the dreamy place to start a family. I had two boys, healthy boys. And as most of you know, as a mother or a father, your children really look at you to see your response to life. So. I identified with Tara when she said she looked at her husband to kind of read his response. Kids do that with us. They trust us. They look towards us for our response. I had gotten so accustomed to this easy language that flowed so effortlessly between my kids and I that when I had my third and he was born severely brain damaged without the ability to use a brain. You know, there's a lot of people out here that talk about the challenges of having one sense stronger than another sense. But what I was dealing with was something totally different. There wasn't the mainframe. There wasn't the brain. So I found myself unable to hear anything that he had to say to me because it wasn't coming through the channels that we're so accustomed to. So I spent a lot of time on my knees. I spent a lot of time in prayer, searching. I was desperate for answers on how I could hear what it was he had to say, because I knew his soul was so perfectly intact, and I knew that mine was not. And so it was me that had a lot of work to do 
in order to learn how to hear the voice and the soul and the personality of this precious little angel boy. And what's so interesting as I explain the story to people is that it took having a child that didn't have a voice, that didn't have vision, that was tube fed, to be able to truly open up and hear all of the love that is constantly being spoken at all times if you're able to close your eyes and if you're able to listen. I used to close my eyes and I would put my head on North's chest. His name was North. He got the most unusual name for 2005 in the Idaho vital stats. So he was a winner from the beginning. He was born on Halloween and everyone said, I wonder if it'll be a trick or a treat. And I said, well, <laughs> turned out it was a little both, a little bit of trickery here and definitely a lot of treat. And so as I, ha I go about life and we go on a trip and I've got the two boys, North is at home. He would seize a lot. If he was up here, this would definitely be a seizure risk for North. So we're on the plane, we've got the two boys, one's four, one's six, it's a long day. And there's a baby in the back and he's screaming and he's crying and he's carrying on. And my older son looks at me because he can see I'm getting anxiety because I had a little PTSD with North. He would cry a lot because he was trying to be, he's trying to communicate. And my son said, mommy, that's a Northy. I didn't know what he meant except for that he was very loud and vocal and seemed distressed. And that was North a lot of the time. And as we got off the plane, I smiled at the mom. And the mom looked at me and she said, I'm so glad you didn't get frustrated. He's severely autistic. And it seemed like your boys understood. And I said, well, I think what they understood is that in our family, we see when somebody has a need or an itch. Or if their arm is tweaked out, we correct that for them. Because we learned very early on that there are some people that need help with correcting that which is uncomfortable. So I'm so thankful that I had the ability to learn to hear with something other than my ears, because utilizing a heart to hear what is being spoken to you, using your heart to speak to others what it is that you really want to say, is the most important thing that my baby brought to me. So thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to see the storytellers in addition to hearing them, this entire show is available on the Story Story Night YouTube channel. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, and our season sponsor, The Chandra Group. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe to Story Story Night on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcast. Have a story? Call the storyline at 208-917-1970 and leave a message, or click the Stories tab on our website. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook.
I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story. 